what I mean. Talk shoes. Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink. This is Christagenia Saturdays. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. This is Saturday, January 14th, 2012. This month's moving right along already, right? Tonight I'm going to... Um, I just decided to do this this morning, and it's something I had mentioned wanting to do a couple of months ago. When I presented a speech from Ezra Pound, and, and that night I, I believe I also... Um, talked about an article that I had written on on the current situation in Europe. The gist being that the Jewish bankers had completely taken over Europe. Well, they did that a long time ago. That was the result of the war. And Ezra Pound was warning about that even before the war ended. Well, long before the war ended. I professed at that time not knowing much about Ezra Pound. Now today I know a little more. And for the sake of the um, the people who listen to me and, and um, the fact that a lot of the people that visit the Christoginia chat servers and forums also didn't know much about Ezra Pound or, or only had a sketch of, of the man's life. Tonight I decided... After um, I had read these, well, well this morning, I, I had read these articles that Clifton sent me from a 1995 Barnes Review. The Barnes Review has done a lot of very good work over the years. I don't like some of the, um, the work they produce lately, that they've produced some really strange things the last two, three years. I, I, I don't know, and, and I think it's a shame. But they have done a lot of excellent work, and they have been a valuable resource. And, and especially when I was doing the, um, the Sunday night podcast with Sword Brethren, and, and we leaned very heavily on, on material, revisionist material in the Barnes Review, which is usually um, of very excellent value. And, and that's actually how I, I met Carolyn Yeager, so, so that was a very um, fruitful endeavor. Ezra Pound was the leading figure, and, and these are the words of, of the, this is from a sidebar in the article. I don't know if this is the editor of the Barnes Review at the time, it would be John Tiffany. Maybe these are his words, or maybe it's one of the staff writers, Piper or one of them. I don't know. It's not credited. It, it might actually be from Vivian Bird and George Fowler, who wrote the article, the first article that I'm going to present tonight on Ezra Pound. And before I get into this, that reminds me. I want to talk real quick. I was um, a couple of times in the last couple of weeks, I've been perturbed. I tried to get to the News Europa website at derfuhrer.org, and nseuropa.org is the name of the site. And that's also been a very valuable resource to me these past few years in the the material they present there is is um, very important to the revisionist history cause, and and that they present a lot of um, excellent translations of the speeches of Adolf Hitler and and other words, uh, other works from World War II and and histories and things like that. And and I found the NSEuropa.org site to be quite invaluable. 
and I haven't been able to get to it for two weeks. Now, after I did the interview, or, or it wasn't really supposed to be an interview, it was supposed to be a discussion, right, with, with that Hitler-bashing clown Jim Condit. After I did that, and yes, I don't mind calling him that, and this will be posted on my website. After I did that discussion with Jim Condit, the, the um, proprietor of NSUropa.org had contacted me, and, and he had some excellent information that I ended up sharing. And, and um, I, I know his email is in my, in my address box somewhere, but there's just thousands of messages there, right? And, and it's nothing I'm going to find very soon. Uh, I really hope to hear something. I put a notice on the front page of my Minecraft project site. I really hope to hear something or, or some news or see that site go back online somewhere. But if it can't, I would volunteer my own services and resources to keep that site online, and, and I, I have um, some of the best resources available on, on the Internet, I, I think, um, in our cause, and, and I would gladly put nseuropa.org back online if, if it needed to be done. And it doesn't even have to be a Christogenia subdomain, right? So I'm just making that announcement, hoping that um, somebody who knows the situation can... can um, can, can perhaps send me a message at info at christagenia.org and, and, um, and, and, or, or let us know what's going on because I would hate to, you to lose that invaluable resource. I mean, I have it here on my hard drive. I've downloaded the website, and, and it's in my backups and all that, but, but it's, it's, it, it's not 100% ever when you download a website, right? And it really needs that that original site really needs to survive. What well, we need that to our cause. That's the way I look at it. Okay, Ezra Pound was the leading figure in the Imagist movement, and remains one of the most highly esteemed poets of the century, due to his wide-ranging intellect, the power of his literary output his sheer literary skill, and his celebration of the best of Western and other cultures. He drew his themes from classical mythology, economic theory, Confucian ethics, and, and I'll get to that in a second, and other seemingly disparate sources, all in, a, in an attempt to interpret cultural history. Uh, I think our, um, you know, a lot of great Western minds have, have been captivated by the mysticism of the East and, and the, the alleged wisdom of, of Confucius and other Chinese philosophers. I really believe that all of the, um, all of anything you might find in value in Chinese culture actually had trickled into China from the West. And that's why the Chinese could never really um, maintain any of it beyond a, a certain point in time or a couple of generations because they don't generate anything of value culturally that they're only copiers that they don't that this chinese music is flat chinese philosophy is flat and, and um confucius had nothing on on the wisdom books of the hebrews or the greek philosophers nothing at all so so i don't know why so many brilliant white men look to the east, look to the orient for inspiration, 
And, and I think that's a flaw in, in, in many of the people of our race. And, and Ezra Pound was evidently caught up in that as well. But I won't fault the man for that. It, it's a mistake that many good white men have made. But it is a mistake. Imagists worked with ideas stressing vivid, sharp images as a means of poetic expression, colloquial language, precision in their choice of words, and complete freedom in their choice of subject matter. It is this last aspect that got Pound in trouble after World War II, for his poetry was just one means of expressing the ideas and beliefs he held so dear, that these ideas ran counter to the prevailing interests of FDR and his crowd, is what condemned him to St. Elizabeth's Mental Hospital in Washington, D.C., the establishment not daring to try him for treason. His friends included William Butler Yeats, James Joyce, T.S. Eliot, and Robert Frost, all of whom knew him as a man of great personal generosity and powerful intellect. But his post-World War II years of incarceration without trial speaks volumes, or even even or rather particularly today, about the tyrannical potential of liberal democracy as it prevailed over the principles set forth by our founding fathers. The ordeal of Ezra Pound, we submit, stands as a lesson central to contemporary America. And I have a comment on that, because we have in Christian identity, we have a lot of clowns, and, and Ted Wheeland is number one. And he has been bashing the founders of this nation, and it is not the fault, and it sure as hell wasn't the plan of the founders of this nation and the founding documents that this nation, that these founders produced. It was not their fault nor their plan for what happened to this nation in the dawn of the 20th century and the dawn of liberal democracy. What happened to this nation in the period from the Gilded Age to Franklin Roosevelt when this nation was what when this nation was abrogated, our rights as free citizens were abrogated, and actually we could argue that this started with the Civil War, were abrogated by our own leaders and given over to the Jewish bankers on Wall Street when the Federal Reserve was founded. That wasn't the fault of the Founding Fathers. In fact, that's exactly why the Founding Fathers gave us the Second Amendment, and we failed to use it. At the period in time where we needed it most, we failed to use it. And now, because our grandfathers failed to use it, we don't deserve it. Yahweh said he would hand our kingdom over to the beasts, and it's done. Revelation 17, 17, we'd better repent because God is our only hope. With all that being said, let's get back to Ezra Pound. His friends included William Butler Yeats, James Joyce, T.S. Eliot, Robert Frost, all of whom knew him as a man of great personal generosity and powerful intellect. But his post-World War II years of incarceration without trial speaks volumes, even or rather particularly today, about the tyrannical potential of liberal democracy as it prevailed over the principles set forth by our founding fathers. We haven't had a constitution in a hundred years. 99. Next year, 2013, 100 years of the Federal Reserve, 100 years of Jewish rule over America. The ordeal of Ezra Pound, we submit, stands as a lesson central to contemporary America. According to one of Pound's infamous radio broadcasts, quote, 
Usurers provoke wars to impose monopolies so that they can get the world by the throat. They provoke wars to create debts so that they can extort the interests and rake in the profits resulting from changes in the values of monetary units. A nation that will not get into debt drives the usurers to fury. That's what happened to Tsar Nicholas. That's what happened to Adolf Hitler. That's what happened lately in Libya and, in, and it's going to happen in Iran. A nation that will not get into debt drives the usurers to fury, and we all know who the usurers are. This war is a chapter in the long and bloody tragedy which began with the foundation of the Bank of England in faraway 1694. Yes, Ezra Pound was right about that. With the openly declared prospectus, and he quotes, the bank has the benefit of the interest on all monies which it creates out of nothing. And ever since, the English people gave the, 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 the Jews of the city and the Anglo-Saxon noblemen who were in bed with them, ever since the English people, the English parliament, gave that Bank of England that power, they have used it to abscond the wealth of the entire world and the political power and the freedom of the entire world. And, we're where we're, and we have arrived where we are at today because of that. A snatch of Pound's verse reveals his self-imposed mission. Yes, the critics everywhere in academia and the popular press regard Pound as one of the greatest literary craftsmen of this or any age. But have any listened to what he actually had to say? Just like Jesus, right? Everybody loves Jesus. Nobody knows what the hell he said. That's the way it is. God has put me here in earth's goodly spear to sing the, the song of day, a strong, glad song, if the road be long, to my fellows in the way. So I make my song of the good, glad light that falls from the gate of the sun and the clear, cool wind that bloweth good to my brother, every one. Every one of my brothers, right? Okay, with that said, Ezra Pound, American Volcano in Italy. This article was written and published in the Barnes Review in 1995, July of 1995. I don't have the original. I thank Clifton Emma Heiser for the copy in front of me. The Irish poet William Butler Yeats saw his friend Ezra Pound as much as the ancients saw the volcano, a divine voice of displeasure and wrath bursting awesomely over the land. But in its wake, the volcano's wrath leaves fertile streams, field, fertile fields, I'm sorry, streams, rivers, and precious stones amid bucolic landscapes. But the righteous powers of liberal democracy saw themselves as fully enlightened and pound as a threat to their perception of utopia. The mountain that was pound would have to be silenced. It's absolutely clear that the, um, the Samuel Untermeyer crowd, of which 
Franklin Roosevelt was a pawn. The Bernard Baruch crowd, if you want to call it that, he was Samuel Untermeyer's, um, well, he outlived Untermeyer anyway. And he was very influential in the, in the Roosevelt administration, the, the Jewish banker from Wall Street. These men were able to silence a great number of American patriots, and they silenced Pound after the war. They silenced Huey Long. They silenced Lewis McFadden. All viable opposition to Franklin Roosevelt, they silenced. They, 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 they tied up Elizabeth, Elizabeth Billing and, and many of the America First Committee, right? And, and, and they silenced Lindbergh when they kidnapped his child. And, and I guess Lind, for Lindbergh, that was all it took, right? Well, which is a shame, but it's unfortunate that that was able to silence him. So, so that Ezra Pound is only a small part of this great large picture of tyranny and oppression that was extant in America that the Jewish bankers of Wall Street worked through liberal democracy, through the Roosevelt administration, through the Truman administration, to silence American patriots so that they could abscond with our political power and perpetrate all sorts of evil in the name of the American states. Ezra Pound's only a small part of this picture. Ezra Pound was born October 30th, 1885, in the then shabby dot on the map of Haley, Idaho, the only child of Homer and Isabel Weston Pound. He, his father had moved there to operate a government land office registering mining claims. His mother was a, dis, what was a descended, his mother was descended of a Massachusetts Brahmin family that settled Weston. Let, let me say that, um, that that term Massachusetts Brahmin isn't quite right. It should be Boston Brahmin. That term Boston Brahmin described the, the WASP elite of Boston, the Protestants that founded and, and, and built their circle of, of society around Harvard University. It was found, it, the term Boston Brahmin described those people that the upper crust wasps of Boston, who, who had um, all of the, the trappings of, of rich noble society in, in Massachusetts at, at the time, and, and they were the original founding stock, that the upper crust of the founding. I don't know how, how and if they were infiltrated heavily with, with our favorite merchants, right? They probably were, but the Boston Brahmins were originally wasps, the term was originally coined by Oliver Wendell Holmes. The, the, the author's choice of Massachusetts Brahmin is, um, well, well, that's unfortunate. It might lead people to believe that Ezra Pound was half Indian or something, right? Which just wasn't the case. His mother was from the upper crust of wasp society in Boston. In Michael Rex, Ezra Pound, a close-up, the title of the book, the author noted that Frontier Haley's single street, the town that Pound grew up in, was composed of a plank sidewalk, 47 bars, a hotel, and a single newspaper. When Ezra was four, the family moved to Pennsylvania and settled at Wincote near Philadelphia. So he wasn't affected by that too much, I gather. Sent to a Quaker school at six, Ezra was dubbed 
the professor because he wore glasses and used complex words. At 12, he entered Cheltenham, a military school two miles from home. He took to Greek and Latin, but detested military drill. In Ezra Pound, The Solitary Volcano, another book about Pound, author John Titel noted that Pound wrote his first poem at 11 about William Jennings Bryan. And it, it was 1896, the year of the great commoners, populist, Free Silver Campaign, Brian's nickname was the Great Commoner, right? Populist Free Silver Campaign against the Eastern Banking Trusts. I imagine who they are. Titel states that the Nebraskans' attempt to defeat the banking establishment and the gold standard left a formative impression on Pound if we consider his later economic theories. In 1898, a generous aunt took Ezra and his mother on a three-month excursion to North Africa and Europe, including Venice. Pytel saw this trip as opening an opening door for Ezra, a push in the direction of history and culture. At 15, young Pound was, already, was ready to begin university study, and he had already defined a purpose in the poet's vocation. Ezra Pound's high intelligence and profound erudition made him an immediate standout among scholars. Entering the University of Pennsylvania at the tender age of 15, most um, American boys are sophomores in high school, he was regarded as a brilliant student, known for his poetic genius and scholarship, as well as a flamboyant manner of dress befitting his individualism. No, he wasn't a hippie. He was also exceptional, an exceptionally handsome young man, quite attractive, to the opposite sex, unlike today's Jewish pop culture poets, huh? At Penn, Penn State, Ezra became a good friend of the poet William Carlos Williams. Subsequently, Williams recalled that Pound wrote a sonnet each day. A sonnet is about 14 lines. It's a 14-line poem. At Penn, Ezra became a good friend of the poet William Carlos. I'm sorry, I'm repeating that. Unfortunately, these efforts, meaning Pound's early sonnets, were not, re were not preserved. In 1903, Pound went on to Hamilton College in upstate New York. That's actually about 20 miles up the road from where I live. There he studied Anglo-Saxon, the Romance languages, and medieval history. It's a beautiful place, too. Too bad it's taken over with Jewish academics from downstate New York. Pound returned to Penn in 1906 to become a Harrison Fellow in Romantics. It was at this point that he began to think about writing a long epic poem. For a short period, he taught at Wabash College in Indiana, but as a result of a romantic involvement with a young actress, he was obliged to leave. Such incidents are often fortuitous. The incident soured him on campus life. Had it not occurred, Ezra Pound might have become inexorably entwined in ivy, the academic equivalent of a tennis bum. In February 1908, he sailed for Europe to live in Venice, taking residence over a bakery close to the Grand Canal. Ezra Pound would not return to live in America for almost 40 years. When he did so, it would be under tragic and brutal circumstances. Of course, it would be in 1945. Pound published his first collection of poems under the name Alume Spento, 
which means with tapers clenched. In Venice in June 1908, this publication was paid for out of his own modest pocket. In a letter to his parents, he stated his determination to have his works published in America, even if it meant writing his own reviews for them under another name. Later that year, he traveled to London with three quid in his pocket and copies of Alume Spento in order to resume an acquaintanceship with the famed Irish poet William Butler Yeats. They had met during Yeats's 1903 American Lecture Tour. The two became close friends, and Yeats was the intermediary through whom Pound met other renowned writers, such as T.S. Eliot, Ford Maddox Ford, James Joyce, and artist and poet Windham Lewis. More than a few such friends would stick by him in the dark times to come. Pound's poetic output soon grew so prolific to, I'm sorry, Pound's poetic output soon grew to prolific proportions. And he rapidly gained critical acclaim. His skill as a poet was complemented by his expertise in medieval and romance literature, as evidenced by such works as his 1910, The Spirit of Romance. In The Roots of Treason, Ezra Pound and The Secret of St. Elizabeth, author E. Fuller Torrey, a medical doctor, stated that Pound became interested in fascism as an alternative form of government in 1922. Let me state that fascism was actually, it, it, I, I, I don't remember exactly when it was conceived, but it was at least 30 or 40 years older than 1922. Fascism developed by men that were white nationalists before, there were white, before white nationalists were thought of, right, before the name was thought of, as a response to Jewish capitalism. It developed as an alternative political theory to protect ourselves from the looting of the Jews. The Jews hate real fascism. The name is slung today like mud by people who have no idea what fascism is. Fascism would protect our national economies from Jewish bankers who want to do nothing but loot and pillage our wealth, our resources, and our labor. And it's a lot older than Adolf Hitler, Benito Mussolini, or Ezra Pound. Many Pound students concluded that the expatriate developed early admiration for Benito Mussolini, a dictator who had restored order to a fractured nation, stimulated industry and agriculture, drove organized and very powerful criminal gangs such as the Mafia deep underground, yeah, where they sprung up in New York, <laughs> and produced a return to the glories of ancient Rome. I don't know if Mussolini went quite that far, but he did put Italians back in charge of the Italian economy. Town corresponded regularly with El Duce, El, El Duce, I can't ever say that word, I'm sorry, signing his letters with devoted homage and with all my faith, in quotes. By 1931, Pound Stationery noted the fascist calendar, which commenced with Mussolini's coming to power in 1922, and the Mussolini motto, liberty is a duty, not a right. The poet and the dictator met in 1932 and discussed poetry and economics. Apparently, Ezra was too swift for Benito on both counts as the vain leader begged off future meetings. 
But Pound's admiration for the regime did not waver. Let me just make a side note here that I don't know if that's a fair assessment or not. I don't get, you know, Mussolini was a pretty bright man. I don't think that he may have been at the level of intelligence of an Ezra Pound, but let me say that um, Mussolini, what was a seemingly very practical man, and, and it can be understood that men who who were poets and and who were well studied and in many different um disciplines well well they really don't often have practical skills and it it really takes a combination of both right and and those things happen very rarely and and happened in fact in Adolf Hitler what well, well I just see Ezra Pound as being very ethereal and probably not able to communicate well enough with a practical man like Mussolini. But but that's okay. I, I, I just don't think that's a fair assessment of the relationship. And, and I'm not that studied in it, but I, I have read enough about both men now to, to imagine that, that perhaps that's not a fair assessment. The first war of 1939 began sadly for Pound with the death in the south of France of his old friend William Butler Yeats. He had not been to America since 1911, and at the urging of the Italian government, he accepted first-class booking on an Italian liner sailing for New York. Quite soon, after arrival, he left for Washington, staying with two sisters, old friends living in Georgetown. His aim was to reach governmental leaders with reasonings of peace. So he was, there we have the ethereal, impractical academic that thinks that he could convince these men with agendas that they should turn a different way. And, and perhaps that's the real problem between Mussolini and Pound, right? But that's okay. President Roosevelt would not entertain the thought of a visit from Pound. Well, of course not. He's a man with an agenda. He's a puppet with strings pulling him. He can't make his own decisions. And Pound sure as hell isn't going to convince that Jew bastard about anything. My, my French. President Roosevelt would not entertain the thought of a visit from Pound, but the poet did confer with Senators Bankhead, Bora, Bird, Wheeler, Taft, and Vandenberg six of the Senate's most significant members. He dined with influential friends such as Archibald McLeish. He offered the interesting suggestion that, as a means of allaying tensions in the Pacific, the United States give Guam to the Japanese in exchange for 300 films of no NOH plays. That there we have the ethereal, intelligent, academic, and, and poet making, um, well, maybe it was his idea of irony, right? Back in Italy on June 29th, he heard of Ford Maddox Ford's death, also in the south of France. Within three months, the war had begun. And Pound began writing to everyone in America he knew, urging neutrality. H.L. Mencken wrote Pound a number of times that FDR was working hard, to the contrary. Dr. Torrey wrote that Mencken's letters reinforced Pound's views that the president was a tool of Jewish financial interests. Pound just thought he could perhaps change his mind, but of course he wouldn't be able to do that. Pound began radio broadcasts for Italy's Ministry of Popular Culture in January 1941. 
And, and I, I, H. L. Mencken is another person that 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 really needs to be stu- well. Well, by me anyway. Perhaps there are probably plenty of white nationalists who have studied H. L. Mencken, but I, I've read very many um, positive comments about and from him that that inform me that he also knew what was going on in our nation, in our world, at the hands of the Jewish bankers. Pounds began radio broadcasts for Italy's Ministry of Popular Culture in January 1941. His vehicle was the American Hour, seven minutes of commentary ten times a month. Seventy minutes a month. He traveled from his home in the village of Rapallo to Rome to record several programs of his own composition at a time. His talk centered on the theme of Roosevelt, Churchill, and the Jews as the perpetrators of Western destruction. And I would add to that that they were also the perpetrators of Eastern destruction, meaning Eastern Europe and, and, and well, well the, the generation before them, Soviet Russia. But, but even Churchill and Roosevelt have a hand in that because they were both working for their respective governments during the First World War. In fact, it's probably not an accident that in the First World War, Franklin Roosevelt was the United States Secretary of Navy under Woodrow Wilson, and Winston Churchill was Lord of the Admiralty in Britain. So they were in equivalent positions in both world wars. That is not a coincidence. Pound's central themes of philosophy, economics, government, and an abiding disdain for the Jews did not translate to carte blanche championship of the white race. A Pound-recorded broadcast ironically aired while Pearl Harbor was being bombed included. And, and he didn't like Australians, and he was a philo-Sinite, I guess, a, a China lover. I, I don't know. It's, it's, I, I see this as a flaw in Pound's thinking. I really do. As for the Australians, and this is Pound, they deserve, and, and that we have some people listening tonight that will be interested in this one that won't like Ezra Pound when I'm done here. As for the Australians, they deserve a Nepo-Japanese invasion. Uh, I'm sorry, a Nepo-Chinese invasion. Criminals were their granddads, and their contribution to civilization is not such as to merit even a Jewish medal. Why the heck the Chinese and Japs don't combine and drive that dirt out of Australia and set up a bit of civilization in those parts is, for me, a mystery of the Orient. Now, now I don't know why Ezra Pound was so bitter towards our Australian brethren, and, and that, too, is, well, well, it's a question, but I also see that as a, that, that statement as, as revealing a serious flaw in his character. Because if white men don't stand together, we're never going to stand, period. Pearl Harbor stunned Pound and he vowed immediately that he would broadcast no more. He seemed deeply and sincerely conscious that any subsequent words could negatively affect America and its armed forces in time of war. Pound was an American patriot. No matter, regardless of right or wrong over the war, no matter how that war came about, his perception was that he had been using his fascist microphone in Italy in the years building up to the war as a weapon for America and its vital interests, a perception 
that would in time cause him to break his vow and return to the recording studio to resume his broadcasts. The January 26, 1942 issue of Time magazine reported that Pound would no longer broadcast, that he had retired to Rapallo to continue his study of Chinese philosophy. But the poet's mind would not content itself with remote Chinese wisdom. Shortly, he was back on the air. Now, now right there, we see the impact that Ezra Pound had. Even though this article doesn't detail it, we could see it in the fact that Time magazine was concerned with what Ezra Pound was doing. This poet broadcasting for 70 minutes a month in Rome Time magazine was concerned enough with what he was doing to be tracing and reporting on his movements. So he must have been shaking the Jews up in the Jewish establishment of New York, which Time magazine is a part of. His first broadcast after the U.S. entered the war may have been one of his most incisive. Roosevelt had so far as evidence to me, meaning pound, showed broken his promises to the electorate. Well, of course he did. Every U.S. president does. He had, to my mind, violated his oath of office. He had, to my mind, violated the oath of allegiance to the United States Constitution, which even the ordinary American citizen is expected to take every time he gets a passport. The United States has been led down the garden path. And yes, of course it was. In a March 1942 talk, now, now this March 1942 speech is, that this is a reference to the speech that I read here back in November, right? In a March 19, 15, 1942 talk, he reiterated his conviction that influential Jews were the enemies of Axis and Allied alike. And it's quoted, where he quotes from that speech, no Rothschild is English, no Baruch, Morgenthau, Cohen, Lehman, Warburg, Kuhn, Kahn, Schiff, Seif, or Solomon was ever born an Anglo-Saxon, of course. And it is for this filth that you fight. Yes, it is. It is for this filth that you murdered your empire. It is this filth that elects, that selects your politicians. Yes, they do. They do it in England, and they do it here in America. And they have been doing it since Woodrow Wilson. In The Solitary Volcano, the book about Pound, Titel points out that July 1943 was a significant month for Pound. On July 26th, the District Court of the United States for the District of Columbia indicted him for violations of the treason statute. In Italy, the previous day, the tiny ceremonial figurehead, King Victor Emmanuel, asked Benito Mussolini to resign. The new government outlawed the fascist party. In a long letter to U.S. Attorney General Francis Biddle, who we've seen, even though he didn't like it, went along with the, the prosecutions, the persecutions of, of all those innocent American patriots in the great sedition trials, caring about his career and his job more than about truth and justice. In a long letter to U.S. Attorney General Francis Biddle, Pound showed his deep concern regarding the charges. That, now, let me say as an aside that the indictment has no weight until Pound is in American custody, right? At this point in his life, Italy's still in the war, the United States hasn't won yet, and Pound is a free man in Italy. 
In part, he stated, I have not spoken with regard to this war, but in protest against a system which created one war after another, in series and in system. I have not spoken to the troops, and I have not suggested that the troops should mutiny or revolt. In other words, he hasn't committed any real treason, right? It's only political opposition. That's all it is. The whole basis of democratic or majority government assumes that the citizens shall be informed of the facts. We're still quoting Pound's letter. I have not claimed to know all the facts, but I have claimed to know some of the facts which are an essential part of the total that should be known to the people. Well, of course, the people weren't getting the facts because the media was controlled by the Jews. I have for years believed that the American people should be better informed as to Europe and informed by men who are not tied to special interest or under definite control. The freedom of the press has become a farce, as everyone knows that the press is controlled, if not by its titular owners, at least by the advertisers. Free speech under modern conditions becomes a mockery if it does not include the right of free speech over the radio. At that time, the radio was like the Internet is to us today. In early September 1943, Italy capitulated just as American and British forces prepared to invade the mainland. Pound was in Rome, a city in chaos, with nowhere to go. Two friends, an Italian and his English wife, helped Pound prepare to journey north to Rapallo. At least he didn't marry a channel woman. There he continued to publish tracts. The war, save for low-level bombing hits, a propagandist's dream on a church in an orphanage, had not physically affected the charming town, meaning Rapallo. The poet's final wartime article on economics was published April 9, 1945. In the book The Life of Ezra Pound, Noel Stock noted some confusion as to Pound's arrest. According to Mrs. Pound, two communist partisans bearing Thompson machine guns arrested him in late April or early May. Stock concluded from Army intelligence reports that Pound had been in custody at the counterintelligence center in Genoa, Italy, since May 3rd. After interrogations, Pound was moved to the, to the disciplinary training center just north of Pisa and placed in one of ten guerrilla cages that held particularly notable prisoners, several of whom were slated for execution. The cages measured six by six and a half feet, ten feet high, and were kept out in the open, their occupants exposed to the elements. In The Roots of Treason, another book, Dr. Torrey wrote, nobody was certain what to do with him next, and there was no word from Washington. Army regulations covered most contingencies, but they did not mention poets charged with treason. Ezra Pound was caged for 25 days, wearing loose-fitting army fatigues. Eventually, he was shipped stateside, arriving in Washington, D.C. on November 18th. He was taken directly to D.C. jail. The rest of the story shows what even the most intelligent men, how even the most intelligent men can capitulate under the fear of the mighty power of the U.S. federal government. The question of Pound's treason defense concerned his friends. T.S. Eliot wrote a friend, I think that both you and I realize that Ezra is sane and the world is insane. In other words, Pound's treason defense, right from the beginning, 
was a defense of insanity. And, and that defense of insanity is really a capitulation to the power of the government and the fear of what the prosecution can pull in a trial that can't possibly be fair, right? But since it is the world which habitually, and this, these are the words of T.S. Eliot, but since it is the world which habitually hangs or torments men of genius or vision, this solution, meaning an insanity plea, seems the more practical. The Justice Department had brought over seven Italian radio technicians to testify that Pound, in their presence, broadcast treason against the United States. In the book, The Roots of Treason, Tory pointed out that the difficulty for the government lay in the fact that the Italian technicians spoke no English. Pound's broadcasts were in English, apparently. It was therefore impossible for them to say that they had heard Pound make a particular remark that would be quoted to them by government prosecutors. Pound's literary, personal, and ideological allies realized that given Pound's reduced condition in captivity and the political temper of those who would see him done in, the, the Jewish headhunters, right? An insanity plea was the best course. It appears that any number of prestigious figures were prepared to offer an opinion of insanity if called to testify in a treason trial in which Ezra Pound's wife was in the balance. Public sympathy began to swing Pound's way, even when even unexpected sources supplied sympathetic morsels. The New York Herald Tribune, then the Anglophilic, quote, Chase Bank Republican, unquote, version of today's New York Times, and I would say by calling the, the um, New York Herald Tribune Anglophilic in this context, and a Chase Bank Republican version of today's New York Times, that they're really saying it's, it's a Zionist neocon operation, right, in today's terms. Quoted, and, and a liberal one at that, quoted Pound's lawyer, Julian Cornell, as stating that his client was suffering from claustrophobia and disorientation after having been kept incommunicado in an iron cage for seven months. The Washington Post quoted Cornell as saying that Pound may even lose his life if he is not sent to a hospital. But on Sunday, November 25, 1945, the Post ran an extensive feature on the poet headlined Benito's Boy. It reprinted a number of his pro-axis and anti-Semitic broadcast remarks, equally damaging in anti-Pound quarters, was an extensive story on him from the openly pro-communist New York tabloid called PM. The overriding legal psychiatric question in regard to Ezra Pound's trial was, of course, whether he could understand the charges against him. Well, of course he could. And whether he could assist in his own defense. His lawyers were claiming he couldn't. The court, no doubt, after a great deal of backroom politics, agreed to Attorney Cornell's request that his client, in urgent need of care, be placed in a hospital. Pound was transferred to St. Elizabeth's, Washington's mental hospital, on December 21, 1945. As noted by Tory, not a sympathetic biographer, he gave the admitting psychiatrist a detailed and rational lecture on why he was not guilty of treason. So we see that he had his senses. He had broadcast his ideas from Italy, 
because in the U.S. during the war, it would have been impossible to do so. He had been saying the same things prior to the war as he said during it. He had been performing a patriotic duty as an American and discussing the true causes of the war. Well, of course, the establishment Jews don't want to hear that. He felt that he must emphasize to the American people that President Roosevelt had violated the Constitution and that America should get out of a costly war not in its interest. Well, of course, all that is true, but of course, the Jews in control don't care. Generally overlooking pound biographies is the fact that by the end of 1945, time was running against his more intrepid antagonists. Troop ships were returning with tens of thousands of GIs who had fought in Europe and who were telling the folks back home that we fought the wrong people. And well before the newly self-anointed anti-communist crusader Winston Churchill turned against his wartime pal Stalin with his July 1946 Iron Curtain speech in Fulton, Missouri, Americans were becoming aware of Soviet brutality and acts of arrant, arrogant ingratitude in war-torn Europe. And, and, you know, I have a few comments about that. We are the world's biggest suckers. We fall for this. Even, you know, these people are pretty intelligent. Vivian Bird and... and um, Fowler, uh, um, George Fowler, they're, they're pretty intelligent and, and they're pretty good revisionists, but even they fall for this. This is all straight bullshit. The Cold War, the Iron Curtain speech, that was all orchestrated. And it's my belief, my sincere belief, that that was orchestrated to cover so that the Jews could cover for their crimes. The Jews couldn't cover for their crimes if the Soviet Union remained our ally and remained open to us and American citizens would have expected friendship from our victorious partners against fascism and those evil Nazis. No. If the Soviets did not quickly become our enemies, if the two heads of the dragon were not severed from each other and separated, the Jews would not have been able to cover for their crimes. The Cold War, the Jews perpetrated the destruction of white Christian Europe, and the Cold War was a cover and a distraction for the crimes of the Jews in the middle of the 20th century, or throughout the 20th century. It remains a cover for the crimes of the Jews until this very day. And we still fall for it. Even our brightest revisionist historians fall for that bullshit. Winston Churchill's Iron Curtain speech was engineered. It was engineered. It happened on American soil in 1946 in Missouri, and it was planned. It was all part of the plan. They had to sever the relationship between the Anglo world, the Anglo-American world, and Eastern Europe so that the Jews could cover for their crimes and we fell for it. And our people still fall for it. Pounds first. St. E's, the name of his hospital, is referred to as St. E's, St. Elizabeth's. Quarters were in Howard Hall, a locked ward with barred windows surrounded 
by high walls. In January 1947, Cornell's bail application, Cornell being his lawyer, was denied. But the court and the attorney general reached an agreement allowing Pound to take a room in the more pleasant section of the hospital overlooking the Potomac, where Dorothy Pound, his wife, and others could visit comfortably. Throughout the 1950s, the poet continued to read, write, and in a somewhat tragic comic sense, hold court. His surroundings, including part of the hospital grounds, became an intellectual salon. John Titel wrote that Pound was being visited by the literati, the scholars, the social creditors, and right-wing sympathizers. Several of the resident psychiatrists at St. Elizabeth's complained about the fawning sycophants who came to adulate. In the late 1950s, such literary figures as Robert Frost, T.S. Eliot, Archibald MacLeish, and Ernest Hemingway lobbied hard for Pound's release. Now, now let me say a power, uh, 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 let, let me offer a comment about this paragraph. I'm going to, um, after this presentation by George Fowler and Vivian Bird, which I'm almost through with, I'm going to present Eustace Mullins's paper, short essay, entitled My Memories of Ezra Pound. And, and Eustace Mullins has a totally different opinion of Robert Frost's effort to free Ezra Pound, right? It's, and, and keep that in mind for when we get there. Then Washington super lawyer Sermon Arnold of Arnold and Porter agreed to take the case. On May 7, 1958, so Pound is already incarcerated for 13 years, Ezra Pound was officially discharged from the hospital in the custody of Dorothy Pound. Years later, Attorney General William P. Rogers said that Robert Frost had negotiated an understanding to the effect that Pound would leave the country if released. And we see, we'll see, again, we'll see um, a different story from Eustace Mullins. Dorothy and Ezra Pound arrived in Italy that June. He had got bad press in the States when he was photographed in Naples giving the fascist salute. Noel Stock wrote, Home at last, surrounded by many of his books and papers, he was full of energy and despite his 72 years, ready for work and to entertain his friends. Shortly after his arrival, he received a check for $1,000 from Ernest Hemingway, who thought Pound might be in need of cash. $1,000 was a lot of money in 1958. The poet wrote to the novelist with Sank saying he didn't need the money but would value the check, which he would have duly, duly framed for posterity. In January 1965, T.S. Eliot died, and Pound flew to London to attend a funeral at Westminster Abbey, then on to Dublin to visit with William Butler Yeats' widow. Through Yeats, Pound had become a strong proponent of Irish freedom, the removal of the last Union Jack and orange sash from Irish soil. He always referred to a meeting he had with Arthur Griffith, the founder of the IRA's political wing, Sinn Féin, as one of the most illuminating hours of my life in conversation. He turned 80 in October of that year, and Stock noted that articles and tributes were published in many newspapers, periodicals, and magazines in England, the United States, Germany, France, 
and Italy, and he was also the subject of wireless and television programs he himself celebrated with a trip to Greece. On June 4, 1969, Pound and his longtime friend, Alda Rudge, flew to the United States 11 years after his release from St. Elizabeth's. The day after his arrival, he attended the annual meeting of the Academy of American Poets at the New York Public Library. I'm sure by then, none of those poets were really too American. That would be my guess. On June 8th, he and, his Miss, he and Miss Rudge motored upstate to Pound's alma mater, Hamilton College, where he received an honorary Doctor of Letters. which is only an honorary degree in the United States. Their friend James Laughlin lent them an apartment on Bank Street in the village and town visited bars and restaurants such as the White Horse Tavern on Hudson Street, where famed Welsh poet Dylan Thomas had suffered a massive insult to the brain, as the death certificate at St. Vincent's Hospital read, while stacking a pyramid of downed shot glasses on the bar. That summer, the poet returned to Italy, and last survive, the last surviving leader of the modern movement in English literature. Critics noted that Pound knew little of, their work, of the work of later craftsmen such as Dylan Thomas and Evelyn, Evelyn Waugh, but that Pound's own literary influence was and would remain immense. He died in his sleep the night of his 87th birthday, having been too tired to attend a cake and champagne party in his honor. His body was taken to San Giorgio after a brief ceremony attended by family and friends. The old warrior was rowed across, a road across the lagoon by four gondoliers to the burial island of San Michel. It reminds me of when the people died and, and the Greeks imagined that they were transported by the ferrymen across the river Styx. I guess that's a fitting burial for a poet. Michael Reck concluded that Pound's attitude toward democracy separated him from most of his countrymen intellectually. That's because most of his countrymen intellectually are bitten by the serpent. Like that very American writer, H.L. Mencken, he didn't believe in it. So America has two insightful writers to our credit, right? Or at any rate, didn't swallow it whole. However, Pound wanted no tyranny or autocratic government, but Republican government as it existed in the years just after the American Republic was founded, a quixotic ideal. And yes, it is, because we won't have a republic as long as Jewish bankers are in control. So that's a brief synopsis of the life of Ezra Pound, brought to us by Vivian Bird and George Fowler of the Barnes Review, July 1995. In that same article, the Barnes Review was kind enough to publish My Memories of Ezra Pound by Eustace Mullins, and I'm going to present that momentarily. You know, I have some respect for Eustace Mullins. I'm familiar with his work. I haven't read one of his complete books. I've read chapters out of his books, I've seen his, some of his videos. I have a couple of his things posted on my Saxon Messenger site. Eustace Mullins, we owe a debt of gratitude to. He did a lot of very good work in, in, in investigating the Federal Reserve System. But I have to say that I don't totally um, 
Well, well, I, I don't have total faith in the man when it comes to his quotes and, and some of the things that he cites or claims as facts from ancient history or from medieval history, and, and he has been fast and loose with some things. I don't think he does it dishonestly, but he, he has um, – he, he's no Bible scholar, and he has misrepresented some things, I believe, from, from – the medieval period, and, and maybe that's because it fits his agenda. Uh, maybe he does it honestly. Maybe he just doesn't know. Or maybe he does and has citations that he never shared with anybody because he said some things that just can't be um, corroborated. So I think that Eustace Mullins, while, while overall we owe him a great debt of gratitude, uh, I think he can be fast and loose with facts at times. And, and likes to mold them into his um, his, his present requirements, right? With that said, this is my Memories of Ezra Pound by Eustace Mullins. A personal friend of the late poet Ezra Pound, who visited him regularly during his confinement at St. Elizabeth's, relates his recollections of the man. Each springtime, my mind becomes flooded with memories of my old friend, the poet Ezra Pound. I remember well my visits with this remarkable figure as we sat on a lawn at St. Elizabeth's Hospital during pleasant afternoons. Although the grim walls of the institution towered a few feet behind us, we seemed to be sitting in an elegant park. The grounds had originally been planned as a national arbitorum or, or, or a place that's planted with trees, right? A tree park. They were planted with rare specimens of trees from all over the world. Ezra always had a snack for me, hard-boiled eggs from lunch, bread, ham, and other leftovers from the basic but plentiful hospital meals. After some months of these feastings, I decided to surprise the pounds with a bottle of wine to accommodate our meal. His wife, Dorothy, became uneasy, thinking her husband's visiting privileges might be curtailed, as alcohol was forbidden to patients. Ezra had no such misgivings. He insisted on uncorking the bottle himself and liberated the bottle's contents with a great pop, which echoed across the lawn. Soon he was tipsy on the first wine he had tasted in years, but I continued to smuggle it in, and no one ever interfered with our festivities. Pound enjoyed such all-too-brief hours as his only relief from the grim days and years spent in the hellhole which was his term for the mental institution in Washington, D.C. This was an insane asylum where the occasional federal offender, such as current inmate, well, current in 1995, I don't know about today, current inmate John Hinckley, who shot and wounded President Reagan in 1981, is detained. It is a grim, foreboding brick complex that had been built to house Civil War veterans whose minds had been shattered by the horrors of its battlefields those same bankers. Ezra Pound was no returning veteran, and to my knowledge, he had never committed a violent act against anyone, let alone a president of the United States, although he unashamedly loathed the president who, in effect, got him there, Franklin Roosevelt. He had been imprisoned because he was against the war. He had broadcast speeches in which he warned his fellow Americans not to listen to the siren songs of the international bankers yet another time. Well, they, we've listened to those siren songs again and again and again and again. 
He asked Americans to avoid becoming embroiled in the Second World War. Although he had exercised his constitutional right to free speech, he was sentenced without trial to spend the rest of his life on earth in this gloomy and morale-shattering place. His captors assured anyone who inquired that he would never be allowed to leave St. Elizabeth alive. Our first meeting had come when one of my professors asked me to accompany him on a visit to Ezra Pound. The same poet had already spent three years in detention, so it would be 1948. The hospital occupies a bluff that overlooks Capitol Hill in the distance. Seated on a lawn, we could almost see and could certainly visualize those in power who had done so much to harm our country. Pound's wife, Dorothy Shakespeare Pound, always sat with her husband on such afternoons. She lived in a tiny apartment a few blocks from the hospital. Throughout his 13-year confinement, she walked to the institution each day to be with her husband. An English woman, she knew little of his country and was totally at a loss here. After 13 years of his confinement, I began to smell a rat, Eustace Mullins. Despite having hired a lawyer to appeal his, confi his confinement, there had been no action to either hear his case or place a limit on his sentence. I brought a well-known Washington journalist, Rex Lampman, to visit Pound. He and Rex were two of a kind, a Native, Ameri Native American curmudgeons. After a few minutes of conversation, Rex exclaimed, What the hell are you doing in here? What do you mean, said Pound? The government put me in here. To this, Lampman replied, Well, the government may have put you in here, but I am sure as hell going to get you out. Like most Americans, Rex had assumed that one would be committed to an insane asylum only if one was insane. He did not know of the well-developed Soviet MKBD, or later KGB, technique of placing political dissidents in such places. And yes, that is absolutely true. There they would be discredited, given drugs, and in many cases driven insane. Yet, you know, where you see the same tactics on two sides of the world, you see the same perpetrators, right? Some maintain that it was, lead, it was leading Roosevelt administration State Department figure and convicted Soviet ally Alger Hiss. Well, the entire Roosevelt administration was Soviet allies. That's a ridiculous assertion. <laughs> Alger Hiss who suggested this Stalinesque treatment for Ezra Pound. When visitors to St. E's suggested that Pound could derive some satisfaction from the fact that his too was now in prison, he would sniff, hell, he ain't served half as long as I have. Rex Lantman was as good as his word. He contacted Congressman Usher Burdick of, Usher Burdick of North Dakota and called in a marker. Lightman's father, an influential newspaper editor in that state, had been of considerable help to Burdick in his campaign for Congress. Burdick, uh, Burdick agreed to return the favor. Speaking on the House floor, Burdick said in reference to Pound, why is the government still holding this man? The government gave no answer. But shortly afterward, the Department of Justice held a brief hearing, and all charges against Pound were dismissed. Pound's enemies, led by the vicious columnist, Walter Winchell, who was a Jew, were furious. When Winchell heard that a move was underway to free Pound, he boasted on his national radio program. 
Ezra Pound will be freed only over my dead body. Now Ezra was free. Winchell, nevertheless, continued on for a few more years. Shortly after I had met Pound at the hospital, his friends had asked me to explore chances for his release. I had lunch many times with George Stimson, a founding member of the National Press Club. Stimson had furthered the careers of more than a few powerful Washington figures. As I discussed Pound's plight with him, he was not encouraged. But seeing my disappointment, he finally said, well, I'll see what I could do. A week later, he told me that he had asked two of his friends, General Lucius Clay and Supreme Court Justice Tom Clark, about Pound's chances for release. Both men had assured Lantman that Pound could never be released. George demanded to know why. Clark said that he had heard his fellow justice and FDR intimate, Felix Frankfurter, the great American Jewish traitor, refer to Pound in terms of utter vitriol. We see that um, Felix Frankfurter, when, when I covered the sedition trials with, with um, Sword Brethren back last year, Felix Frankfurter was behind putting many of the communists in place in the Roosevelt administration. He was a, a, a Jew, and he, he, he was standard bearer for, for Wall Street interests in Washington for a long time. I could not be the bearer of this grim news, and I never mentioned this matter to either Ezra or Dorothy Pound. More than a decade would pass before Rex Lightman made his entrance at St. Elizabeth's to inaugurate procedures for Pound's release. As Pound's only authorized biographer, I included this story in his biography, which is quoted, this difficult individual, Ezra Pound. All of Pound's other biographers, a dozen or so, give most credit for Pound's release to another poet, Robert Frost, which we saw repeated in the article by Vivian Byrd and, and George Fowler. Frost, when he was a struggling young poet, arrived unknown and destitute in England. Pound not only supported him from his own meager funds, but arranged to have Frost's poems published. Frost later stated that, had he not met Pound, he probably would have committed suicide due to his hopelessness at the time. During the years of Pound's mental institution imprisonment, Robert Frost never visited him. He feared that the establishment, to which he was beholden for publishing his books, might be offended if he made even that token gesture of repayment for what Ezra had done for him. I see that as a big failure on part of Robert Frost, if indeed Mullins is correct. I, I, don't, I don't doubt Mullins' word here, but um, yeah, yeah, that's a huge failure on the part of Robert Frost. After, and and it's, it's ironic that Frost now gets the credit from liberals for, released, for getting Pound released, right? After Congressman Burdick's championing of Pound's cause, the machinery for his release was set in motion, at the hearing, government lawyers produced Robert Frost and claimed that he alone had requested Pound's release, where we see it was actually this newspaper reporter named Lampman who had pulled all the strings, right? Subsequently, Pound's biographers, themselves liberals, 
claimed that Pound's release resulted from the intervention of their fellow liberal Robert Frost. When quintessential Washington liberal columnist Mary McGrory, then employed by the Washington Star, which folded in 1981, after which she went to the Washington Post, interviewed Pound following his release, she asked why he had not been expressing his gratitude to Frost. Pound growled at her, well, he certainly hasn't been in a hell of a hurry. A few years earlier, I had gone to McGrory's office at the Star, meaning Mullins, and suggested that she might want to go with me to St. Elizabeth's and interview Pound, and she refused. Soon after Ezra's release, he and Dorothy began packing for their return to Italy. That's a good woman that sticks by her husband for all those years. I asked him to remain here for a few months, as I could see that freedom in America was in jeopardy due to the climate of liberal democracy. Of course, we know today that freedom is indeed in jeopardy in America. The sugar-coated term for insidiously dictatorial government had been riding high since its claims of victory following World War II. Dorothy was aghast at the prospect of spending any more time here. In her experience, America was the St. Elizabeth's environment and double-talking officials and lawyers. Well... They were mostly Jews or proselytes for them. Ezra was himself anxious to return to the northern Italian environment he loved, and no leading American academic, intellectual, or writer had urged him to stay. This despite the fact that he was and is the literary giant of the 20th century. Four of his protégés, Ernest Hemingway, T.S. Eliot, William Butler Yeats, and James Joyce had been awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature. I should say the Nobel Prize for Jewish Obedience. Today, Pound, I'm sorry, after they had been edited by Pound, today there is not in residence on any American campus a literary figure of distinction. We lost our opportunity to make use of Pound's presence, thereby further dimming our literary heritage. That's a good assessment by Mullins. Most of the poets on American campuses are Negroes and Jews, and none of them have any distinction. But from my personal standpoint, this man's wretchedly contrived years of incarceration was certainly not wasted. It would be a mistake to leave the impression that those afternoons on a lawn at the hospital sitting on the green park benches were devoted merely to political discussion and chit-chat. In fact, Ezra and I were engaged in deadly serious work. We were editing the results of my research at the Library of Congress on our fraudulent banking system. This resulted in the first impartial study of the Federal Reserve System, published in 1953 by Casper and Horton as Mullins on the Federal Reserve System. The book has been in continuous print ever since. It has sold over a million copies, despite the fact that it has never been reviewed by a major publication nor enjoyed bookstore distribution. It is to Ezra Pound that I owe a great deal relative to the book's success, which Pound suggested I research and write. Ezra believed at the time, probably correctly, that if I dedicated it to him, it would only make his precarious existence at the hellhole even more difficult. But many years later, I was able to properly dedicate it to him under the title, Secrets 
of the Federal Reserve. Today, there are no longer any records of Pound's unjust imprisonment at St. Elizabeth's. A nurse whom I knew purloined his entire file from the psychiatrist's office. It is believed that she sold them for a small fortune. Possibly someday those records may be found. If so, they will prove to be among the strangest and most enlightening in the long annals of man's inhumanity to man. That's the end of my presentation on Ezra Pound for this evening. Thank you for listening. I hope you found it enlightening. I'm going to scan these, these pages. The quality won't be the greatest because it's from a copy. It's from a photocopy, but, but it's not bad. I'm going to scan them and, and with a link to the Bond Review because the Bond Review does grant permission to reproduce their articles as long as you put a link to their website, and I'd be happy to do that. I will put the PDF file that results on Christagenia.org along with the, the podcast, the recording of the podcast here tonight. So that will be on the front page of the, web, of the website by tomorrow. I will be here next week on Friday with James chapters 4 and 5. I will be here on Saturday, but I'll be on the road. Uh, I pray, Yahweh willing, I'll, I'll be in the Philadelphia area again. And, and I'm going to do the program from the road with Matthew Ott, and I'm going to present my paper, Heirs of the Covenant, and again address some of the boneheaded ideas in Christian identity that somehow we should be universalists, which is absolutely destructive and absolutely contrary to the word of our God. That'll be next Saturday's topic of discussion. Thank you for listening again, and praise Yahweh. Good night.